Father, may our worship this morning be pleasing to you. May the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you. May the words that come out of our mouth be pleasing to you. And in all things, may we know and sense the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I want to speak some today about journeys. We can approach a conversation about journeys from a number of different angles. So let me start by asking you all a question. When you think of the word journey, or when you think of journeys, what comes to mind for you? Think on that, and then feel free to shout it out. What comes to mind when you think of a journey? What'd you say, Mary C? Life, life okay. The life journey, all right. What else? Hobbits. Did you say hobbits? Okay, <laughs> yes. Indeed, hobbits, the great trek, okay. What else? Don't Stop Believing, the band journey. I knew someone was going to be it, and it was DJ. Okay. <laughs> Headed someplace, okay. Longitudinal. Ooh, longitudinal. I can't even say that word, Susan. Longitudinal, okay. Great, okay. Anything else? Preparation, James? Yeah, okay. Preparing for something? Mistakes. Okay, very good. Dan? Something that sounds more fun than it is. <laughs> indeed, something that sounds more fun than in, in practice it can sometimes be. Chris, indeed. A going and coming. A going and coming. Gas prices, Dan. Uh-huh. What'd you say, Emily? Up and down. Okay. All right. That's pretty good. All right, so hopefully that expands our imagination a little bit. I think it's safe to say that all of us have had some experience with a journey of some kind and perhaps can hold that in our imagination for this morning. Let me ask another question. What about faith? When you think about your life of faith, when you think about your spiritual journey, do you see it as a kind of journey? A few, okay. All right, well, that's where I want to guide us today. I want us to consider our walks with Jesus, wherever you might find yourself with that today, for what they are. They are journeys. And speaking personally for just a moment, coming to understand faith as a kind of journey has been one of the more helpful truths for me. Uh, coming to understand our walk with God as a kind of walk has helped me to see how this life of faith, this choice, to trek behind Jesus is one big adventure. That's what it feels like to me, a big adventure. It's dynamic, it's full of surprises, there are woeful moments, there are wonderful moments. And I think every day, every day as followers of Jesus, we open ourselves up to an adventure, a true adventure. Every day becomes another chance to know God deeper, to experience the love of Christ more, to be more formed fully into his likeness, to invite others onto the journey with us into this kind of full and vibrant living. But I think we have to be awake to it. We have to be willing to see it that way, to see the life of faith as a journey. And we have to be consciously looking for ways we see God at work along the path in our lives and the lives of those around us. I call it dusting for God's fingerprints, looking for where God is moving. Where do you see evidence of the Lord in your life? And I think that we would be wise to remember that this journey isn't one that we embark on alone, right? We are with God, or rather God is with us, 
And we do it together. We walk together. And while we all might be on different paths, coming closer to Jesus from different angles and certainly at different speeds, our destination remains the same. I like how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, in essence, we are all walking each other home. That's this long obedience in the same direction that Peterson writes about. Other great saints before us have put it a little bit more bluntly by saying, in essence, we're all marching towards death. And that can be either a deeply despairing thought or a hopeful one, right? And as believers, we choose the hopeful one, the one that says death isn't the end of the story. It wasn't for Jesus, it isn't for us. So the march towards death or the process of aging or descending into the depths that Kent spoke about last week that needn't be a source of fear. That is where we are headed, but it's not the end. It's, there's more to it than that. I think it's a daily choice to see faith as this kind of adventure. Uh, it's a daily choice, I think, to get up, pick up our crosses, and keep walking. It's difficult. It's hard. So journeys, I love reflecting on my own spiritual journey. I love hearing about other people's journeys, and I really enjoy looking at the beginning of a journey particularly journeys with Jesus. Because if there is one thing that I have learned, it is that when we take seriously this call to follow Jesus, things will change. We will not end where we began. We will not stay in the same place. And I don't know about you, but I find that both terrifying and exciting at the same time. Christianity, this thing that we're all a part of, it's a societal movement. Movement implies movement. The journey will take us places. Things will change. We will change. The world around us can change when we choose to follow Jesus. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? It's what we say yes to when we say yes to Christ and start walking. So today I want to take us back to a beginning because I think we are at a beginning here at UCC. The semester is about to start. Kids, teens, you guys are going back to school soon. Jeremiah's coming to join our pastoral team. We have made it through the throes of pandemic, the not gathering, the gathering with half the people on Zoom, the mask gathering, the no hugging, all of it. We've made it through, and a whole lot of other stuff. We have made it through. And I know that some of you in your personal lives, you have made it through things, or you are making it through things, right? And so I want to celebrate that with you all. There has been movement. Here we are. There has been movement, there has been change. And I want to look closer today at scripture with regard to beginning a journey, specifically the journey of faith. Now I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think I am preaching to people here this morning who have been on this journey with Jesus for some time, right? Maybe we're all at different points on that, but most of us, knowing you as I do, we have been on this journey for some time. I don't presume that's true, but that's my general sense. And, and we are in a context where I don't think we should presume that most people are trekking behind Jesus. I don't think that's the case. We are in a post-Christian, post-truth, highly individualized, highly consumer-driven university context in the Western world. That's our context. We're seeking to follow, we're seeking Jesus in that space, hopefully inviting other people onto the path, but that's difficult. That's difficult in the context that we live. So I want to take a closer look this morning at some ways the first disciples began their walks with Jesus, including how they invited others to join, so that we have a framework, so that we have a framework to start thinking about how we might invite others onto this path with Christ here in this context in the 21st century.
Okay, good to explore that with me a bit today. I hope so, because that's what I prepared. <laughs> All right, uh, turn with me to John 1. We're, we've been in John at the end. We're going back to the beginning, John 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 29, and I'm going to go through 51. A little bit of a longer passage. It'll be on the screen. You're welcome to follow along that way, or just close your eyes and listen. See if you can't imagine this scene and see what you notice. Here we go, starting in verse 29. <clears throat> the next day he, he is John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. All right. So what is going on here? This is the story from one perspective of the first disciples making a choice to follow Jesus. Notice how the following seems to be kick-started by a proclamation. Verses 29 and 34 through 34, John the Baptist testifies, and then in the company of two of his disciples, one whom we understand to be Andrew, he proclaims in verse 36, look, here is the Lamb of God. The very next verse, verse 37, says, The two disciples heard him say this, 
and they followed Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Andrew hears John's proclamation, and it seems to be enough to kick him into gear to move him towards Jesus. Andrew then proclaims this time to his brother. In verse 41, he says, we have found the Messiah. Notice how a proclamation seems to start a chain reaction of proclamation. Verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael. Philip says to him, we have found the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And despite a moment of skepticism, what good can come out of Nazareth? Look at what Nathanael goes on to say in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Four moments of proclamation. John the Baptist, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel. It seems to me that when God comes into the picture, when Jesus shows up, the response from God's people is proclamation. And my understanding of what proclamation is, is merely saying what you saw and what you believe to be true about it. That's what happens here. Look closer at John the Baptist's testimony, verses 29 through 34. Thanks, Derek. Here we have a camel hair wearing locust-eating, man living in the wilderness, calling people to repent of their sins and then dunking them in the river. Let's look at his testimony. John is in effect saying, God told me that one will come after me, and this one ranks before me. In other words, I know who I am, and I know that the one who is coming is above me. Right away, right out of the gate, John humbles himself by positioning himself underneath Jesus, as if to say, I know that I matter, I have a part to play, but I'm not superior to the one who will come. And then he says, this one is coming so that he might reveal himself to Israel. The one who is coming, John says, is a God of revelation. He wants to show himself. He wants to be seen. John declares what he believes God is coming to do through Christ, to reveal himself and to save his people. And then John, in effect, says, that's why I'm out here baptizing people, because we've got to get ready for this, right? In other words, because I believe this to be true, here's what I'm doing about it. John's belief impacts his living. It impacts his response. It impacts his obedience. And then John says, how will I know when this one is here? Oh, I'll know it's the one. When the spirit descends like a dove, lands on him and remains, and John sees it. And then he proclaims what he believes to be true about what he saw, even if it sounds crazy, that this one is the Lamb of God. I have seen the one who God has said will come after me, but whom I believe ranks before me. I have seen the one who God has said will rescue his people from their sinfulness. And because I believe this to be true, I'm out here baptizing those people. I have seen the one upon whom the Spirit will descend and remain, and so I believe that this one is the one that is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit because that's how God said it would happen. There's power in proclamation. And John's proclamation, which in our passage from this morning is probably the most robust compared to the other three, John's proclamation seems to be the little mustard seed that moved Andrew and the other disciple towards Jesus. It's right there, verses 36 and verse 37. John says, look, here is the Lamb of God. 
verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Could it be that simple? Andrew's little proclamation, he's not quite as over the top as John, it seems to be the mustard seed that moves his brother Peter towards Jesus. Philip's little proclamation, he hasn't seen Jesus do anything yet. There's been no miraculous healings, no miracles, but he believes that this is the Messiah. Moses and the prophet said with coming, his proclamation seems to be just enough to get Nathaniel's attention. And Nathaniel, he's a skeptic. We all know Nathaniel's. Sometimes we are Nathaniel's. And yet look at how Jesus moves him. It doesn't take much to shift his doubt into the beginnings of faith. There is power in proclamation to move people, right? There's power in saying what we've seen and what we believe to be true about it. I think we sometimes get stuck thinking that proclamation has to be some perfect buttoned-up sermon or some five-point outline about what we believe and why we believe it. It doesn't. It just doesn't. What have you seen and what do you believe to be true about it? Where are you seeing healing happen? Where are you seeing reconciliation and restoration happen? Where have you glimpsed beauty? Where has joy landed upon you as if out of nowhere? Where has peace been restored, even if it's just a mustard seed of peace? Where has justice reigned? These are the signs of God's presence among us. You have stories. I have stories. We all have stories, experience of God along your path. What would it look like to speak it, to proclaim it, to write about it, to say it? I think sometimes we also think that our faith has to be fully formed or fully developed in order for God to use us. Not so in the kingdom. I put some mustard seeds up here on the communion table today. Take a look at them when you come up for communion or you can, you can take one with you. I want you to see how small a mustard seed is. It's a teeny tiny thing and yet the mustard seed grows into an incredible tree that God's living creation finds sanctuary within find safety, find shade. It takes time, and it takes watering, and tending, and pruning, but it happens. It does grow, and it develops. So it is with our faith. So it is with our faith. It's a process. It's a pursuit. It's not so much a possession, something we have or don't have. It's a pursuit. There was a time when your faith was like a little mustard seed. Perhaps that was at the beginning of your journey or somewhere in the midst of it. And my guess is that when your faith was the size of a mustard seed, some people came alongside you and walked with you and helped you move, helped you become who you are today. Or at the very least, they helped you move from where you were to a new place. It might be good to think about who were those people in your life? What did that look like? And what changed in your life because of their faith, right? And their invitation to come and see my encouragement to you this morning, particularly if your faith is feeling small, is to just take a closer look at this story. Look at how the mustard seed faith of these disciples launched a movement, a societal movement that we still participate in today. It's incredible. There's power in the mustard seed. There's power in proclamation, even if it seems small. Let me touch on one more thing this morning that I see in this passage that I think is important for us. It strikes me that these disciples, as different as they probably all were, they hold a trait in common. And that seems to be their willingness to just be with, to be with each other, and more importantly, to be with God, to be with Jesus. Right? The disciples ask Jesus, where is he staying? And he responds, as he often does, by saying, come and see. 
And then the scripture tells us that they came and saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. They just went with him. They didn't seem to mind the interruption. Whatever else was on their agendas for that day no longer seemed to matter. I find that incredible. Think about that in your own life. Emily and I like to joke about how much we love being interrupted, you know. Think about that for a second. They just went with them. In my own life, a willingness to just be with God in prayer, through the reading and meditation of scripture with other believers, in nature, all of that. Learning to just be with God has been one of the most formative parts of my faith journey, but I also find it to be incredibly difficult. It's the most inefficient thing we could do with our time in the world's eyes. There's very little output that comes when you're just wasting time with Jesus. And this is hard because sometimes our identities get wrapped up in our output and in our productivity. But I think it's the most important thing that we could possibly do with the time that we have, learning to just remain, to dwell with, to abide with Christ. And I think I think when we step into this practice of surrendering more to God's love by just opening ourselves up to that love without agenda, that love permeates our entire being. And that is what then allows the love of Christ to flow from us into the people that we encounter. We cannot manufacture that. We have to absorb it and then let it flow from us. It's a very mysterious process, but I believe it to be true. So how do you hear that invitation this morning to just be with Jesus? to come and see and to remain. Do you welcome it? Does it sound difficult? Is this something you find yourself already practicing or something that maybe is, is a weaker spot for you? It's good to just look at that. It's good to just look at that this morning. What we do in the world matters. There is a mission. There's work to do and yes, God is looking for partners and we also have to practice abiding and dwelling with and remaining in the presence in the midst of all that. It's in the story. So there's power in our proclamation, however small it seems. How are you seeing God at work in your life today? And how might proclaiming it encourage someone else's faith? Think about that this week. Is there someone God has put on your path? Someone looking for a bit of hope, a bit of good news? I hate to tell you, but you might be the good news. You never know how your faith might encourage someone else's walk or vice versa. There's power in just being with however inefficient that seems, just being with God. How is that going for you? How is your time with God without agenda going? And is there any tiny tweaks that you could make to that? I will just say for the sake of confession or transparency, I've been struggling with that a lot lately. Seems like my, my time of prayer is just an endless list of things I need God to do. <laughs> um, so I've, in preparing this sermon, that's come to the surface for me. I need to look at that. There's some ways I need to make more space for that. Resist the temptation, if that's you, if you're like me, resist the temptation to give yourself one more thing to do. Maybe it's something you need to remove from your schedule, from your day, just to make a sliver more space to be with God in silence or with others, whatever you need to sense his presence and his delight in you for making space to just be with him. Ours is a day-by-day -day walk. It's a day-to-day -day call to pick up your cross and to follow. That's what we say yes to when we say yes to following Jesus. It's a great adventure that we embark on and we get to walk on that journey together. So let's keep stepping into it, keep encouraging each other and inviting more people to join onto that path. Let me pray for all that.